Hey guys, we have such a smart and funny woman who we adore with us today. Yes, in this episode, author Lissa K. Adams will be talking about changing careers and how being a romance novelist and a feminist can exist in the same space. She's breaking the patriarchy, guys, and helping change the culture of romance. You won't want to miss it. The Speakeasy Podcast, real talk about leadership and sanity in the creative industry. I'm Karen Steffel. And I'm Jen Estel. Managing creativity and business, we probably have an opinion on that. No prohibitions. Clearly, we have cocktails. Yay! Hello! Hi! <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So I'll let's try like... not to giggle too much. I don't know. <laughs> no, feel free. We tend to cry right. at some point oh, in every we're podcast. We're sometimes. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's, it's good like a little Easter egg that we bury in every nice. episode. I'll, uh, watch for the, I'll watch for it. I'll do a really quick introduction. Okay. Uh, Lissa K. Adams gave up the world of telling true stories to pen emotional romances. She's a diehard Detroit Tigers fan who will occasionally cheer for the Red Sox because her husband's from Boston. Lissa lives in Michigan with her family, an anxiety-ridden Maltese who steals food and buries it around the house and who will undoubtedly be a character in a future book. That's true. (laughs) He's very, very spoiled and very neurotic. And um, today I found half a pancake in my coat, which had fallen on the floor in the night, apparently. And I have not made pancakes in about three weeks, which means that he's been burying and reburying half a pancake around my house for... Which is amazing self-control that he doesn't just eat it. No, he's like saving up for the apocalypse, apparently. I don't know. He also taught my parents' dog to save food. He never... My parents' dog was never a barrier... And after we stayed there for a week when I had no heat, um, suddenly their dog was burying stuff all over the house. I'm sure your mother appreciated that. Yes, she did. Yep. Well, if this author thing doesn't work out for you, you can do dog training. (laughs) I can, yes. Or not. With the preppers. Apparently not. Dog training for the end of the world. So let's talk a little bit about, before we jump into, um, into some of the juicy stuff. Let's talk about this cocktail. Yes, we will. So one of the things that I love about this, it's, it's the Orenberry Mule. And what I know about you, Lissa, is that you love winter. I love winter. It's my favorite. And so I feel like this is a, a winter cocktail. It does. Oh, it's for got sure. a beautiful piece of rosemary in it and cranberries and blood orange. and it, But it tastes delightful. Oh, it's so yummy. I'm very happy with it. <laughs> you guys did a very nice job making this cocktail. Uh, thank you. We will pass it on to our mixologist. So the ingredients are blood orange vodka, simple syrup, cranberry juice, a splash of orange juice, some ginger beer, a rosemary sprig, and some cranberries and orange sliced for garnish, as Jen mentioned. It is so good. It's very, very yummy. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go slow. I'm so excited to have you here. I have a million questions about your book. Okay. Should I we start? will answer anything you have. Should we start with the official summary? Sure. First of all, we've got this down as the book club summary, and I will tell you my one of my book for, book club besties, I said, we have to read this book. And she's a book club cheater. She's in two books, oh. or two book clubs. Mm-hmm. And, she, and two days later, her other book club said, I know this lady. She, we have to read this book. Oh, how funny. So with local local book clubs, that must be. Yeah. You're all over, man. I tell you what. <laughs> okay, so this one, it's the Bromance Book Club is the name of the book. It's so exciting. Nashville legend's second baseman Gavin Scott's marriage is in major league trouble. His recently discovered humiliating secret, his wife has always faked the big O. When he loses his cool at that revelation, it's the final straw on their already strained relationship. dun 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 dun, dun. <laughs> Uh, so really this, I don't know if there's a, there's a title for this type of romance. Is it like, so the trope that, um, you know, we talk about tropes and fiction, what is sort of the hook of the book? <clears throat> and in this one, um, it's a, what we call a second chance or marriage in conven- or marriage in trouble story, um, which are two different types of tropes, but marriage in trouble in particular, you almost only see in historically set novels because, you know, back in the 1800s, women didn't have any options if a marriage was in trouble. They couldn't divorce. They couldn't. And so it's hard to pull off in a contemporary series because, you know, the question is, well, why don't they just get divorced if things are bad? And so it's, it can be a little bit difficult to pull off in a contemporary setting. But um, I wanted to tell that story um simply because I came up with the idea for these two characters before I even had this idea for the bromance book club or or anything like that. I just had an idea for, in particular, a a, a major league baseball player who, whose marriage was in trouble. And you tend to think of these professional athletes as, 
you know, they can have whatever they want. They can do whatever they want. Sometimes they're bros. (laughs) Very much. Yes. So what would it be like if, you know, if the wife was the one that wanted out of this relationship? And and, um, so that that's how I kind of came up with the idea. But the two tropes that people tend to describe it as second chance. So people who already know each other at the beginning of the book and then on top of that marriage in trouble. So yeah. So good. And then you added this amazing bromance book club part. And so I don't want to give the book away. I don't know how to really do this without giving everything away. <laughs> it's all right. But um, we really get inside the head of all these dudes. Yeah. Um, so separate from coming up with this idea for these two, this married couple that I wanted to write about, a couple of years ago, um, I just kind of came up with the idea that wouldn't it be funny if a guy went to his friends and was like, you know, my relationship's in trouble. I don't know what to do. And one of them like secretly pulled out a romance novel, you know, well, I read, you know, I read romance novels. So I kind of got this idea that that would be kind of funny. Um, And then that idea grew into, well, what if it was an entire book club, not just one guy who reads, you know, his wife's romance novels, but what if it were an entire book club of men who secretly read these, um, you know, and I don't want anyone to know that they read these, but it's a very secret, you know, so it's a very secret book club and that they use them, you know, to repair. Yeah, exactly. As manuals on how to be good partners. Um, And it's not even just, you know, I've seen a couple of people describe it as they want to learn how to be good in bed. And that certainly, I guess, is, is part of it. But for me, it was a broader look at romance novels tend to model very healthy relationships. And so it was more how to be a good partner to whoever you're with, you know. Yeah, there was a lot more than the in-bed part there. There was a lot of emotional growth and a lot of um, exploring feelings Mm -hmm. that you would never imagine. And trust. And trust. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, And in fact, one of the things that the guys, you know, try to, to teach Gavin is that, you know, open communication is the most important thing. And there's a line in the book where he said where one of them says, you know, problems inside the bedroom always stem from problems outside the bedroom. And if you can't solve that, there's no point working on on the other. And that's part of his growth is learning how to express himself better and to trust that it's going to be okay mm-hmm. if he shows vulnerability, if he admits, you know, to certain things, um, and shows emotion. And that's one of the things that the, you know, these bros as you know, as we call them, um, really try to hammer home to him that you've got to basically open a vein and, and be, you know, have open communication with her or none of this is going to work. It's such a good book. I'm so happy for you. I know. I'm so happy. It's it's very exciting to know a very famous author. How did we get here? I know. Not not the very famous part. Oh, just you wait. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll tell you. um, It's funny because the cover of the book for anybody who hasn't seen it, the there's a book in a back pocket and it has little sticky notes in it. And I actually found myself putting little notes in the book. I I was like, oh, I want to ask her about this part or this part made me cry and this part made me laugh. And uh, I just wanted to remind them all and I remind myself of all of them. And I looked at it. I was like, my book looks just like the cover on the book of (laughs) the book on the cover. I was so confused. It was very meta. But truthfully, within two pages, I both laughed out loud and cried actual tears. So how do you pull that off? That's amazing. I'm so happy to hear that. That's always my goal. Um, So I get asked a lot about how do you write emotion that actually, you know, evokes emotion. Um, And I don't know how to describe it any other way than I just simply go all in. If I'm going to have a character who's sad, I'm going to make it a really sad scene. If I want people to laugh, I'm going to go nutso and make it as ridiculous as possible. Um, because I do want readers to really sort of travel a, a, an emotional roller coaster in anything that I write. I, I don't want, um, it's called a romantic comedy, but as you, as you know, there are parts that are very sad and, and um, emotional and sort of deep. Um, and my philosophy just is, if you're going to do it, you might as well go all in on it. Um, why just write a scene that... Um, you know, that people might find, oh, that was kind of sweet. No, make it as sweet as possible. Make it as funny as possible. Make it as sad as possible. Because that's what makes you remember a story, yeah. is how it made you feel. Absolutely. You have to be able to 
move the needle, not just turn up the corner of the mouth. You have to actually open the mouth and let out a guffaw. Absolutely. Yes, that is exactly true. I want to hear about how I want I want to hear about process. Uh, Like, do you have a Pinterest board that describes who these people are? Do you have some sort of bulletin board in your writing office with their pictures and their backstory and all of their, you know, do you know their birth date? That kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so I always start with character. Um, whenever I'm, you know, in the drafting stage or early stages of, of a book. Um, and yes, to all of those things. Um, I do have a Pinterest board where I put pictures of kind of how I picture the characters in my head. Um, or, you know, something that it sort of inspires me, you know, um, about a location something like that. I mean, I even have pictures on one, one of my poster or Pinterest boards of, um, the kind of meals that, that, a you know, a professional chef might make at home, you know, so things like that, that I can sort of inspire me, you know, I'm very, I'm very bad at description. That's one of the things that I save to the end when I'm revising, because I, I don't know what happens. Like I sit down and try to describe something and it's like, what are words? I don't know what, you know, I, it's beige. I I mean, it's like my one weakness as a writer, but well, I'm sure not just the one, but, um, so I start with, um, some of that sort of the physical inspiration for a character. And then I start to dive into who they are as people on page one, you know, the, all books, sort of the, the, the point of any book is to follow a character through a journey. And um, part of, and the, the big part of that journey is that they change from page one to the end. They're different people at the end than they were at the beginning. And figuring out who they are on page one is so important to helping you write an entire book because it sort of gives you a starting point on this destination. You start to understand what it is about them that needs to change and what things need to happen that would force them to change. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you think about like, what is their biggest broken bit of brokenness what is their absolutely their personality trait that makes them win yeah so I talk I I spend a lot of time thinking about their backstory who they were before page one and I always think about well what would be what's the worst thing that ever happened to them in their life what impact did that have on them and um, I always operate the sort of plotting method that I use is all people have all characters on page one have a fear that stems from something in their life. And that fear leads them to believe a lie about life or love or justice or, or whatnot. Um, one of the examples I always use is, um, the hunger games, Katniss Everdeen, the big lie that she believes on page one is that you can't win against the Capitol. Mm -hmm. You're, you're, you're helpless against the Capitol. So what lie is my character believing on page one that I then have to disprove methodically throughout the book so that by the end of the book, they have a new truth that, that, that they're living? Um, and that sometimes I just know it about a character like right away. Um, sometimes I have to really kind of think about who is this person? What might have made them this way? Um, you know, and how do I undo it, you know, on them? So like why, why for example, did you give Gavin a lisp? Oh, I wanted to ask that one yeah, too. Yeah, oh, so his stutter is really important because um, uh, in early conversations about this book with people, the one thing that my writer friends kept coming back to was, why would a good-looking Major League Baseball player who has millions of dollars, is beloved, what would make him vulnerable? Mm-hmm. It, you know, we tend to think, what, why, would, why would someone like that be so insecure that he's bad in his own marriage or that he doesn't just walk away from the marriage or, you know, what would make that person very vulnerable? And his lack of communication skills also had to be an issue. And it couldn't just be the stereotypical, well, he's a guy and guys don't communicate. You know, I had to give him something much more internal. And so it developed into what if he literally has a communication issue that, um, that, makes it hard for him to express himself to have learned over time to keep things inside yeah um and it and it you know and it does to protect add a vul- himself yeah to protect himself absolutely and so it does add a vulnerability to him but also on the other hand i also like doing stories um that show that um even in this case you know a, a debilitating stutter doesn't he, he's still just a he goes out and is successful and it's not something that has is still part of 
um, is not a hindrance for him anymore, but that it created in his, you know, his, his history, mm-hmm. a real deep wound that made him who he is today. So it's something he got through. It's a roadblock that he got around, but mentally he's still stuck there. Exactly. Yeah. And when people read the book, eventually they do find out that there was one particular incident when he was in high school that had a huge impact on him and how he interacts with and how he interacted with women and, and made him distrust that he was ever truly good enough for somebody, you know, so... Yeah. And so that, you know, in in that case, um, it just it adds a vulnerability to him that I think would be hard to believe. You know, you know, writing fiction is all about helping people suspend disbelief, you know, and um, it was hard in early conversations about the book with my writer friends for them to believe that this super good looking and, you know, famous and rich, you know, baseball star would have that level of vulnerability. Sure. Absolutely. Thank you. That's so cool. Yeah. I feel so much smarter now. (laughs) (laughs) Do you, do you also, in terms of process, do you write out your, do you write an outline? Do you summarize? Do you do a timeline? Do you actually draw what the arc is? Like, you know, like a (laughs) sign wave? I know some people are very visual that way. Um, I, I used to be a very methodical outliner. Um, Then I, got a much, you know, had all these really tight deadlines. I had to finish three books in a year for this contract with Berkeley. And I didn't have time to spend on outlining the way that I used to. So I have sort of adapted my my process. And um, I outline, but in a very simplistic form now. So, excuse me, when I'm drafting now, what I, the first thing I do is I make just a simple list of 30 scenes I know have to be in the book. And some of them are very simplistic, like the first time they meet, you know, mm-hmm. the, um, you know, the first time they kiss or, or the first sense of what we call awareness. When is the first scene when there's an awareness above and beyond, you know, that, that hints at a relationship or an attraction. Um, so I make a list of those, um, of 30 scenes that I know have to be in the book. And, um, then I just start drafting. And, and the, the hard part, the first draft for me is the hardest part of writing. Um, so I aim for all on those 30 scenes. My first attempt is just get a thousand words on those 30 scenes, then go back and layer and layer and layer until you've got, you know, a full book. And I usually end up with way more than 30 scenes, but that 30 is what sort of is the jumping off point for me. So you, so after you have that first draft on the 30, you know where the holes are. What, what didn't absolutely. connect? What do you have to backfill? Yes. That kind of stuff. Yep. Absolutely. In, in novels, are you, I know with screenplays, you know, you're always looking at three acts, right? Yep. So do novels work that way as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I definitely work in the three act structure. Um, and I'm not quite as pure in the the numbers and the percentages, you know, of, of how much of e- of the book each act should be. Um, my act threes tend to be very much shorter than we think of, perhaps in, in movies. Um, and act two is usually much longer because um, that's where a lot of the real meatiness, you know, of the a transition. Book. Yeah, um, but yeah, absolutely. The three act structure kind of keeps me sane because it gives you or gives me. Um, and it's funny how it just tend to, ha- I, it, I feel like it just happens naturally sometimes that like I realize, okay, I've reached a huge turning point at the 25% mark and then the 50% mark. And, and it, it does kind of feel, start to feel a little bit like your natural rhythm of writing anyway, but it does keep you focused on where, where am I falling short in the story? So great. I know. <laughs> what I'm trying to wrap my head, well, I mean the book part. So first of all, if listeners didn't catch that, there's two more coming. There are two yes. more books. Yep. When will we see them? So the second book is called Undercover Bromance, and that will be out March 10th. Um, so the third book is called Crazy Stupid Romance, and that will be out in November 2020. But I don't know the exact date yet. Hopefully not Election Day, right? Hopefully not Election Day. I am assuming that there are not any publishing houses that are putting any books out on that day, but I could be wrong. I just hope that definitely mine is not, not one of them. <laughs> not one of we'll them. cross our fingers. Will we be meeting new characters or are we going to see the same suite? So there is that core group of bros that you meet in book one. And um, book two is about one of those characters. Mac is his name. He's mm-hmm. sort of the flamboyant, you know, obnoxious <laughs> character. Ah, antagonist of the bros. Yeah, of the bros. very much an antagonist to Gavin in, um, in book 
uh, book one. So his his story is book two, and his um, the love interest in that book is Thea's sister, Liv. So, I knew it. Oh, yeah. I knew it. <laughs> That's exciting. You can see that, yeah. Because Liv dusted him. She did. She, she totally blew him like, off. like, you ate my leftover Chinese food. She never forgives him for that. Um, and so that's book two. And then book in book two, you meet a character named Noah, who then is in um, book three. Yeah, so it's that same, you know, it's it's all within the same universe. You will, people will recognize. But you don't have to have read book one, you know, for books two and three to make sense. Um, it's just, and then of course, the, the Russian is a character. He's in all three, <laughs> nice. you know, and he's ridiculous in all three. Um, but a funny story about the Russian, though, um, he, for any for anyone who hasn't read the book, there's a character who's in the book club who's a, a Russian hockey player for the Nashville hockey team. And he does have a name, but they just refer to him as the Russian. And that actually was not planned on my part, that when I was writing, I did not have a name for him that I liked. Um, and so when I was drafting, I would just put in all caps, the Russian, anytime <laughs> he came up, the Russian said, or whatever. And then as I got towards the end of the book, I'm like, well, that's kind of funny if they don't actually ever use his name. <laughs> it makes him so feel that's extra. How, right? That's how that happened. Strange. So that's how he became the Russian. And you do find out his name at the, you know, in the last scene of the book. But um, so that's, that's how the Russian came to be. So um, this takes place in Nashville. Yeah. And um, they live in Franklin. Yes. Did you go to Franklin and hang out and you yeah. went to the restaurants and you, yep. you knew that it was 30 minutes from Franklin to Nashville? Yes. And Although funny things. story, my copy editor, she actually caught at one point. She's like, well, if they're coming from Franklin on the freeway, the headlights would not be facing that direction. I'm like, wow, copy editors are amazing. Wow. That is but, amazing. Um, yeah. So I took a trip um, a couple of years ago, um, a road trip to... I, I'm a nerd and I, we called my cousin and I called it our nerd trip and we were visiting, um, historical sites in the South that we wanted to visit civil rights museums. And, um, and so Nashville was one of the places that we drove through and Franklin. Um, and so I, it was also a research trip for me so I could kind of get to know the area a little bit. Yeah. And Franklin is a cute town. I mean, it's, um, you can't believe it's so close to a major city because it has a very, very sort of small town feel to it. But apparently there are a lot of celebrities who live, mm-hmm. you know, in the country. It's a lot there. of money. A lot of money there. In uh, a, a, a very cute downtown and um, amazing restaurants. Oh. Such good restaurants. So maybe we'll plan a trip there for book two. There that you would go. be so fun. Yes. To read it in its environment. I think that's a wonderful idea. Hear that book club. That's pure. <laughs> uh, you know, the podcast has Nashville roots, too. It does? It does. It's true. Yep. What are the Nashville roots? We were in Nashville together at a conference when the hat, the idea was hatched. And we were no in kidding. a speakeasy when Jen finally weakened me and yep. said, That's made amazing. me say yes. A little place called Skulls on Printer's Row. And it was it's a beautiful little bar. And Karen was under the weather, and I just beat her down with liquor. It's true. Out. True story. She, she she attacked you when you were vulnerable. Yes, yeah, exactly. It's true. She knew my weakness. She was not in her right mind. For sure. And yet here we are. And but I do are. love, I love Nashville and, and um, you know, it's pretty and historic and the main drag there is a bit much for me, but, yeah. but you know, because I'm, I'm old. Broadway. Now, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, why aren't you people home reading a book right now? It's late. Don't you know what time it is? <laughs> it's bedtime. It's bedtime. That's just because you're a grown-up. <laughs> okay. Wise and mature. So, Lissa, I want to know that all the details are so amazing to me. I really want to know, too, because I've heard you speak on this topic. You know, I have never been a romance reader myself, and I have just fallen into this genre and fallen in love because I love these characters. I love this book. So I'm sold. But yeah, that's thing, good. Yeah. My evil plan is working. Yeah, I know. I'm a convert. And I just really got lost in it. I just, I want to know a little bit more about the role that feminism has played in your writing, the way that it's, um, especially given the Me Too movement. Right how how that's changing the face of the genre or if yeah. it is so no i mean i love talking about this and just for a little bit of of history of the romance genre um and and women writers in general uh, of course like any industry women you know really had to fight to get um 
a foothold in literature. Um, there are certainly novelists throughout history of literature who are, are famous, you know, women. But when it came to genre fiction, um, you know, which is things like mysteries, thrillers, romance, you know, that you can sort of easily categorize. Um, women um, were not thriller writers for the most part. They weren't writing spy novels for the most part. You know, those were all very male, male-dominated genres. And so, um, but in the early 70s, um, women who had been sort of shoved into writing, you know, quote, women's stories, um, kind of got sick of being, you know, first of all, you, they were shoveling them into these, these little niche genres, and then they were being trivi- trivialized at the same time. Um, you know, we, we still today hear terms like chick flick, right? And anything that if, if, if women write it or it's for women, it must not be serious and it must not be literary and, and worthy of, of um, attention. Anything with with the word chick or woman's or women's yes. or girls at the beginning of it drives me nuts. Absolutely. I mean, it, it automatically trivializes it a little bit as if it's lesser. Right. Um, but at the same time, you had, uh, during the 70s, of course, um, the the women's movement was really, um, you know, it was, they used to call it the women's lib movement. Um, so you had sort of a, a push and pull going on of women who wanted to write the stories of the women they knew and, and, and how um, one of the first areas that women gained um, independence was in their own relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they wanted to be telling these stories, but publishers were not wanting to tell those stories. They wanted to tell stories of women still being sort of dominated or mm-hmm. or under the control of a man as if like the, the happy ever after always had to be marriage and children. And if there was a career woman being featured, she was always the villain. Um, I remember reading a story that was written in the early 80s, a book written in the early 80s in which um, a man was divorcing his career wife because her career was too important. And so he met, of course, a woman who just wanted to be a wife and mom, you know. So you you did have a time in the genre when, if you were to read some of those older books, you'd say, no, this these aren't positive stories about women. Well, and, and movies kind of were paralleling Absolutely. the way that movies are just, some movies aren't holding up. No, no. And it's sad, too, because some of those movies from the 80s that we loved, you know, as we were growing up, you watch them now and you're like, whoa, that's really bad. That's date rapey. All my favorite John Hughes movies, maybe? Basically all of John Hughes movies, you're like, wow, he did not have a high opinion of women um, or anyone not white. He had a pretty, you know, wow. Um, So what we started seeing, though, is um, as the sort of first generation of writers who were post-women's movement started getting into romance, they started dominating the genre with stories uh, that that reflected the truth about our lives. And that is that we... um, we are not only defined as wives and mothers, we have careers and there's nothing wrong with that. And, and so the genre has really evolved into the one genre out there that really truly celebrates the internal lives of women um, and non-men. I mean, anyone that's not a white straight male. Um, and so it really, they, they celebrate um, women's lives in a way that you don't see in other genres, um, and and it is even every single year seems to to, to um, things seem to change even more. Um, that there was a real a long conversation in the industry about how often um, a woman's backstory included sexual assault and that it ruined her life forever basically you know that and that it take the healing touch of the right man to bring her out of it and you know while certainly sexual assault is sadly a part a reality of so many women's lives it's not a reality that it ruins their lives forever it's not a reality that 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 the love of a good man is what heals you from that assault right right. um and so what's happening the conversations that you're seeing you know, among groups of female friends, you're seeing reflected in romance novels. The things that are happening in women's lives are happening in romance novels, and they're not happening in other genres. Um, I cringe now sometimes when I read books, um, thrillers, or I mean, just any other book written by, unfortunately, by a man, 
I now recognize how deeply rooted some of these stereotypes about women still hang on mm-hmm. um, or the disrespect that is shown to women's bodies in other forms of pop culture that you don't see in, in romance. Romance has been um, at the forefront of the conversation about what positive enthusiastic consent looks like in sexual situations. Mm-hmm. Um, that you don't see reflected in the rest of pop culture, you know. And the minute you start to see it, you can't unsee it, and you see it everywhere. Exactly. Like it's like a veil gets lifted. Yeah, what you're yeah. describing, the minute you go, oh, mm-hmm. then everywhere you look, you're seeing that same thing. Absolutely. I, I remember being so disappointed in a movie that came out a couple of years ago. Um, I wish, um, Wind River, it might have been called. Um that was a really great story about, um, you know, an FBI agent and a, I think he was like a, worked for the Forest Service, Forest Service or something, um, solving the murder of a woman um, on a Native American reservation out west. And it was a great story and really dug into the very important issue of the um, underreported number of missing indigenous women and and the sexual assault levels against indigenous women it was, so it dug into these really serious issues but the first time you meet this girl she's naked on a slab and and like the gratuitous camera work literally treated this woman's body this actress like a piece of meat and i remember just being furious that this is gratuitous you don't have to treat this woman's body this way to get across the point that she's been brutalized Mm -hmm. you know and so once like you were saying Jen that once you see that um it's hard to not see it and you don't see it in romance we respect women's bodies in a way that that you we're still not getting in other areas of pop culture High five to that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> right? Give we me appreciate my soapbox. I love that. <laughs> it's such, no, the, the history is really enlightening and helpful. And um, I really respect how deeply you understand it. Yeah. And respect it yourself. And it's a hard balance, too, because, um, you know, there are certain things that we have come to know as the romantic gesture, the sneak attack kiss. And I even mentioned that in, you know, the book, the sneak attack kiss. And, but yet we, we have to be careful that we need to be modeling consent and, and that it doesn't, that consent is sexy and is part of the sexual encounter um, and the respect of another person's space and body and how that um, respect looks and sounds in a healthy way. Um, and, but you st- there's still lots of times when I will review any of the physical scenes in my book and just make sure, is everyone good here? Yeah. I mean, are both parties being respected in the way I'm describing this, in the way that I'm presenting this, in the conversation that they're having? Um, so it's, you know, you still have to be really, you know, respectful of it, I think, in a way that we still don't see in a lot of other, a lot of other pop culture. But it's, it's been a long road. There were, there were books written in the early 80s that, um, I mean, all but, it's, it's, it's basically rape. I mean, and I, you know, where the man basically forces her to enjoy it, mm-hmm. you know. And my theory on why that was a sort of popular, why they were doing it that way in the early 80s is, is it was a backlash against the women's movement. It was a backlash against sexual independence. Um, we still in this country fear female sexuality there's an ickiness factor that that people feel very uncomfortable about female sexuality so the only way that they could sort of sell it to the public to a queasy public was well certainly she's not seeking it out you know women don't actually have sexual desires that they're acting on they got to be forced into it you know um, so one of the things that I think modern romance novelists do a lot of is show and celebrate female sexuality as well that there's nothing wrong with it women, you know, that there's, you know, the, the term slut shaming, you know, that we are the anti slut shaming genre, Mm -hmm. um, that it's a perfectly natural part of life and there's nothing to be ashamed of it. And women can show the same level of respect to men in sexual encounters, asking for consent the way they, that we want men to ask for consent. 
And that is a feminist issue. It's so interesting to hear this because I think people who don't read the genre would have almost the opposite assumption. They they always have the opposite assumption. Yes, absolutely. So it's nice to know, it, it's nice to hear it from an expert in the field. This is how it goes and this is why we do what we do. Yep. And this is how we're successful. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people would have assumed otherwise. Th- they do. And, you know, I, I think... I'm, I'm in that category for sure. I mean, yeah. I, it's just nothing I've ever picked up and read. I, I, I read, you know, Young Adult Lit yep. when I was of that age but I never really transitioned into mm-hmm. into romance because it was like mm. and then I had evidence for why I wouldn't want to even, right. even as an adult I had a friend who you know asked me if I wanted to borrow her copy of 50 shades and uh, I'm like yes the 50 Ew. shades effect yeah yeah I mean it's sort of you know, I I appreciate what anyone wants to read. I don't I don't bash any readers, um, you know, preferences. But Fifty Shades, in some ways, was like the worst thing that ever happened to the modern romance novel because that's what so many people associated the genre with, mm-hmm. and it's such an anomaly that you know, I I've only read part of it. I I did not enjoy it, um, but. Um, but that you know, people who have read it, it really does model a very unhealthy relationship, mm-hmm. and it's not reflective of the genre. So, so many times, it's sort of an inside joke among romance authors that, you know, when you meet new people, within five minutes of them finding out what you do for a living, they're going to say something about Fifty Shades of Grey, and it's like, ah, you know, it's not. You that's know, not, it's coming. Well, yes, you just know it's coming. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's sort it's sort of like a bingo game for us at this point. You know? <laughs> I'm glad I could toe the line here. <laughs> No, but it's so many people like that's what they associate the genre with because it was so successful. And it's not actually even considered a romance novel because it's considered an an erotic novel, which is a separate genre. Um, But that's what a lot of people associate with. And it's just so different from what most of us are trying to do today. Yeah. You know. So. Well, we'll stick with what you're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> with that. Sign but me up hey, on that. Some people love it, and that I mean, that's great. I mean, she certainly found an audience, and you know, if anything that gets people reading, I'm cool with. If you know, so. says the former journalist. <laughs> of course. <laughs> absolutely. So I want to let's dig into that a little okay. bit more. So you started as a journalist, and um, how did you make your way from, you know, your internship in the press corps at the mm-hmm. White House? to romance. <laughs> How does that work? Long story, right? No. Um, well, I always wanted to be an author, always. Um, I really was that kid, like my family still jokes about how I used to walk around with a pen and a notebook before I could even read or write. It was it was just always, you know. Um, so I knew I w- always wanted to be a writer. Um, and, but I also had a huge interest in politics mm-hmm. and modern, you know, current issues and current events. So journalism was a natural fit. Um, and yes, the internship in Washington, D.C., I was um, I, in, I was so lucky to intern with what was then called Gannett News Service. It was like the Washington Bureau for the Gannett Corporation. And I got to do White House coverage. And it was just weirdly like I left like two months before Monica Lewinsky got there. So I just missed my Monica Lewinsky introduction, but um, which makes me sound really old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so from there, you know, I just did what all journalists do. I worked my way up through newspapers. My first job out of college was, you know, here at the Lansing State Journal. Uh, met my husband there, and then we both went to the Detroit News for a while. And journalists have to move around a lot if they want to move up. Often you can't, you can only move up so far sometimes within a certain newsroom, so you have to move around a lot. So we left the Detroit News for California, lived there for several years. Um, I worked at a paper you know, in what they call the Inland Empire of um, Southern California. And it was the craziest news area. Like anything absurd that happens in the world had a tie in to Riverside, California when I was working there. I mean, every strange thing that would happen, you know, oh, the guy was from Riverside, you know. Um, But it was such a good news town. You know, I loved it and I loved being a reporter. Um, And then when we moved back to Michigan, I took back up at the State Journal um, for several years, but there came a point when, um, I mean, I think all people, but I, maybe women in general, I think kind of reach a point where they're like, okay, wait a minute. Is this really what I, is this really my life right now? Like, you know, I, I, journalism <laughs> sure. is such an all encompassing career. My husband also is a journalist and travels a lot because he covers sports. 
And so there were times when I'd realize I was getting home at seven o'clock at night. My daughter had been with a babysitter for hours. Um, he was traveling and I'm like, this is not really what I wanted Mm -hmm. for my life. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we planned for a year. My husband and I had a conversation. I said, you know, I, this is what I want to do. Um, and so we planned for a year for me to leave my job at the journal so I could pursue freelance writing and fiction. Um, and I will, and so we saved money for a year and, you know, made all the preparations for me to be able to do that. Um, so what's, let me interject. What's the timeline? What, when was that compared to now? Was that a two year process, a 12 year process? So that was, no, the, we, it was basically, you mean the realization that I wanted to be doing something different? Yeah. The, <laughs> the realization and then the decision and then the planning and where you are today. So I, it was probably about a year. Um, so that would have been like 2014, I guess, when I was starting to really feel like, okay, I'm existing. I'm not not, you know, really doing what I want to be doing. And I'm not being the kind of person I want to be. I'm not being the kind of mom I want to be. I'm not, you know, what I'm doing is not all that fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point, did you feel like you had already covered all the, all the stories? Things were to cover. <laughs> You've heard all that the stories never before. Got to that, never got to that point because every day was something new and weird. But <laughs> that's the good thing about journalism is you never know what's going to happen on any given day. Uh, just when you think you've seen it all, an ice storm strikes and you realize that the head of the, you know, BWL is in New York City while everyone else is you know, out of power. And, you know, so, I mean, it was like constant cool stories, but it was more that I felt like I was spinning my wheels mm-hmm. professionally sure. and personally. So that would have been 2014. Um, or I guess no more like 2013 when I started having that conversation with my husband. And then in 2014, we started saving up and I left the journal uh, a year later in 2015. Um, And from 2015 to now, it's been both very slow and very fast. Um, I started putting out, which is, it's very common in romance to start out in indie publishing, publishing your own books, um, because romance readers are such voracious readers that they will just sometimes read like two books a day that they've you know, bought on Amazon. And so it's a huge market for self-published romance authors. So as I was freelancing over the course of the next couple of years, I was also putting out indie titles. And um, then in 2018, um, I had this fully evolved idea for the Bromance Book Club. And I pitched it on Twitter. Um, there is a new thing now where I publishing this. houses. What's that? I remember this. This is so <laughs> yeah. fun. So the, a lot of publishing houses and agents and stuff do things now where they host, you know, hey, pitch us on Twitter today. You know, can you pitch us a story in 140 characters or 280 characters or whatever it is now? Um, and I knew that I'd always wanted to be what's called a hybrid author, both self-published and traditionally published. Um, And so a publishing house was doing that on Twitter. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to pitch this series for this book club of guys. And that was in March of 2018. And which is really not that long ago. No, it's not. No, wait, that would have been 20. What year is it now? 29. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I can't even remember. Both slow and fast. Yes. See, both slow and fast. So that would have been March March 2018. And then um, an agent reached out to me on Twitter said, Hey, I saw your pitch. Do you have representation? I did not. So I sent her my stuff and you have to realize at this point it was all proposal. I had only written about 15 pages of this first book idea. So I sent her what I had and she signed me in two days. Wow. Yeah. So she signed me right away. And so that would have been in April or May, I guess, by the time that all that contract got signed. And she said, I know you pitched it on Twitter to this one particular publisher, but I want to take it wide. You know, when they say I want to send, reach out to a lot of different publishers and see who's interested. Um, I trusted her. So I said, great, let's see what happens. Now, the risky thing there, of course, was that I was still really an unknown author. I only had some self-published titles behind me. Um, And usually a publisher is not going to buy on proposal from an unknown author. It's, you know, usually they want to see a full manuscript so they know that you can produce, actually produce this idea. Yeah. Um, so uh, she started sending out the proposal, you know, an outline of the book idea and, you know, the next couple of ideas for the series. And we got great response. And then in August 
2018, I got the three book offer from from Berkeley on what's called a preempt. So because we had because we had interest from many different publishers, they made me an offer that was like just enough to be like, okay, we'll we'll give you this if you'll withdraw it from the other houses. Gotcha. Um, it was a great position to be in. Made for a very hectic morning. I kept getting calls from my agent. She's saying, okay, Sourcebooks wants, you know, and now, you know, and Harley, you know, all these different houses are interested. So, um, yeah, so November or um, August of 2018. So from between, you know, so that's the fast part, you know, it was like really slow, really slow. And then between from March, when I pitched it first in March 2018, I had a three book deal by August. And then they said, quick, write. And they said, quick, write. Can you turn it in November 15th? (laughs) Now, I had been writing all along, so the book was almost done at that point. But but they wanted to put all three books out within a year. And um, they, Berkeley made it one of their lead titles for 2019, which is, I'm just so fortunate. And I feel so lucky that they did that because it means a lot more sort of attention from marketing and publicity and the sales staff. Um, Which then got you accolades from Amazon and yes. Entertainment Weekly yes. and Glamour Magazine. No big deal. Right, right. Just helped build so much early, early buzz. And I do want to say, I always feel like I need to say this, that um, I recognize fully the role that privilege has pay- played in and where I'm at. Um, I would not be here. I would not have been able to do this if I wasn't lucky and privileged enough to have a spouse whose job could support the family. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and and he would not have his success if he did not come from a privileged background. You know, um, I mean, his father was a teacher. It's not like he, they were rich, but still, I mean, he had a background that we all came from a college educated background. We all have, you know, I had a safety net. Um, I'm white, you know, and I, I, the stories about, you know, heterosexual cisgender people, which is always going to give you a leg up in the industry. Sadly, it still is the case. So, um, while I, I'm so pleased with the book and I, you know, I worked super, super hard. I do recognize that like, not everyone can say, honey, in a year, I want to quit my job and focus on fiction. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just not something that most people can do. So I feel so lucky and fortunate and just grateful every single day that I've been able to really live this dream like this, you know? So well said. I think we should just acknowledge the dog because I love dogs and yeah. I'm very excited that there's All three a dog. of us love dogs <laughs> and what you hear is Archer this time. Sometimes it is absolutely you hear Ruby. appropriate that any episode that I'm on would have a dog in the background. So. She desperately wants to be in the room, so sorry, Aww, sorry about that, listeners. Quickly though, the, so in essence, you followed the traditional path and at a at a certain point, you decided you looked around and realized that wasn't where I wanted to be. Yeah, and and you were able to change your trajectory. Yes, very with, much. That's a cool story. It was a scary. It was very scary too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I again, I th- I think I don't know. I, I think a lot of women we we do what we're supposed to do, right? You you we follow the rules mm-hmm. throughout our lives. And then we sort of reach a, we hit a wall where we're like, wait, wait, wait a minute. You know, this is not where I wanted to be at 40, you know. Um, Turning 40 was a big part for me where I was like, hmm, okay, so these are not the things I thought I would have accomplished by 40. Mm -hmm. Um, So what do I need to do differently to to make those things happen? Um, And again, I was just very fortunate and privileged to be in a situation where I could really pursue them. Mm -hmm. A big part of it, though, was also my daughter. Um, She, you know, growing up with two journalist parents, that poor kid. I mean, in so many levels, that poor kid. (laughs) She's she's her own personality and her own woman. She is. She's the light of my life. Um, She's hilarious. Unfortunately, she takes very much after my husband in sense of humor, which means I am ganged up on, on a regular basis. Yeah. <laughs> At least you recognize it. Yes. I'm very, she's very smart and very witty and, but I wasn't the kind of mom that I wanted to be, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I was always racing somewhere, you know? Um, and I knew that, I knew that I could make it work somehow another way mm-hmm. and pursue the things that I was not pursuing yet. 
I think that message is so important. You know, we talk about the issues of being professional mid-career mothers all the time. Because there's a, it doesn't matter whether you call yourself a journalist or a creative. It's like our, our problems are all so similar. They all have a different nuance, of course. Um, but the sweater is different. The problem is the same. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So it's so true. And you know, it's, um, you know, for as much as I'm sure, you know, as much as our partners are supportive, we're still primarily responsible, at least in my house, you know, um, I'm still primarily responsible for, and, and was then even working, you know, as a journalist, the, the food and the laundry and the, you know, I mean, you just fall into these patterns despite your best efforts not to, um, you know, and being a mom to a daughter, there were certain, you know, uh, you know, I think that there were times when certainly it made more sense for me to be the person dealing with, with certain things. And, um, but I knew that I, this, I wasn't modeling the kind of person I wanted to be for her, mm-hmm. you know? And, and what, what a gift you've given her in your choice that you get to demonstrate that if you don't like where you're at, you can, you change. can change it. I hope, I hope so. Yeah. She's it, very Sometimes it takes hindsight, you yes. know? Oh yeah. But, but that lesson is there. Yeah. She, um, she's, I hope I'm teaching her to very much be her own person and, you know, to, um, not worry about what everyone else is doing or what everyone else is thinking, or, you know, you have, you have to follow your own path, you know, to be, happy and it is okay honey that you got to be on that geometry test <laughs> oh, <dear Lord. laughs> and I think that is the that's a good thought yeah, absolutely I'll tell you what though um I know we have to wrap this up I could we could talk for a half a day yeah I'm sure um tell us where people can find you and where they can find your book so the best place to find me and most most of the time is on twitter sadly oh my god twitter is like both a nightmare and my addiction um uh, that is the easiest place to find out to find me is on Twitter. I need to update my website badly. Um, but to buy, you know, the books are available at all bookstores, um, both online retailers and bricks and mortar stores. Um, last I checked, Schuler's locally only had two copies left. They were ordering some more. But um, so, but if you can also find me on Facebook, I've got my own little reader group, the Lisa K. Adams Book Club. Um, and usually Twitter, sharing pictures of my dog or the neighbor's dog who likes to come over. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's Lissa K. Adams on Twitter, right? Yes, at Twitter, it's uh, Lissa K. Adams. Um, and then Facebook, or I mean, my website is LissaKAdams.com. And you can um, send me messages through my website as well. There's a contact page. So, And yeah. so everybody can go find your book at a local reseller or at a local seller or online. Yep. And we can all put it in our calendar to find the next book in March, March of 2020. 10th. Yep. Oh, mm-hmm. and I'm uh, I'm going to take it on spring break. That's a great idea. I'm going to buy it and then I'm going to sit on it for two weeks and I'm nice. going to take it on spring break. <laughs> If I can, if I have the self-control. If you have the self-control. Oh, it has been such a delight. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I've loved talking about it. Thank you, Lissa. Very, very, very cool. I hope you enjoyed your drink. Oh my gosh, I need to drink it more. I have not drunk. (laughs) That's all right. (laughs) We were grilling you with questions. Want to contribute to our conversation? Reach out to us on social media at Easy Underground or head over to our website, thespeakeasypodcast.com. What are we talking about next time? Oh my goodness. We've talked a lot on the podcast about setting boundaries and saying no more as entrepreneurs. But next time we're actually talking about saying yes a little more. (sighs) Yep. We'll explore what happens when you take risks and try new things. Cheers. See you then.